0: Welcome to Frontline Church South OKC Sermon Podcast. Each week we will have new sermon content from Sunday mornings, both video and audio options. Please visit south.frontlinechurch.com for more information. If you have any questions, need prayer, or have any other needs at all, please email hello at frontlinechurch.com. Thank you so much for tuning in.
1: We are going to continue in the study of the Gospel of Mark and so would you stand with me for the reading of God's word as Bailey comes to read for us.
0: The scripture for today's teaching is Mark 11:27 through 12:12. 12, 12. And they came again to Jerusalem and as he was walking into the temple the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him and they said to him By what authority are you doing these things, or who gave you this authority to do them? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, when then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit from the, from the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat, some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally he sent to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. This is the word of God to us.
1: Thanks be to God. Awesome. Thanks, Bailey. Hey, good morning. You guys can grab a seat. Uh, My name is Andrew. I I also get to serve as one of the pastors here. If you're seeing a theme, we have more than just one pastor. Uh, So it's like, hey, I'm one of the pastors. I'm one of the pastors. There's a bunch of us that do team ministry together, and we're stoked to be able to gather with you. Uh, Maybe you're here as family to babies that have been dedicated or friends of family. Maybe today's your first time at Frontline. Man, here's what we we do when we gather. Uh, When we gather, we're getting shaped and formed into a different way. The world is actively shaping and forming our loves, our desires, how to think about money, how to think about sex, how to think about the good life, how to think about your, your, your role in this life and identity. All of those things are constantly being shaped in hundreds of invisible ways. And what we're doing as we gather is we're actually intentionally sitting under the word of God together together to be reshaped into the image of Jesus, to learn what it is, to really be human as God defines it, to learn how to live in this world and to love God and love neighbor. So that's what we're doing as we gather. That's why we pray the prayers that we pray and do the different things in our service together. Does that make sense? Yeah, sounds good. If you've got questions about that, hopefully you can come to that newcomer's briefing and we'll get a chance to meet you and talk with you there. So welcome. We're so glad that you're here. Uh, we're gonna be in Mark chapter 11 and part of Mark chapter 12 today. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and head that way. If not, we'll have the scripture up on the screen. Let me, let me take a second and pray for us. Father, thank you so much for this room of people. Thank you for uh, every story. And, and just specifically for the ones today that are carrying a lot of shame from either past things that they've done or things that were done against them. Today, I pray specifically that you would meet them in their shame and meet them with not what they expect not with anger or with justice or with a cold shoulder pushing out but really god would you allow them to experience your welcome allow allow them to experience in this moment your fatherly invitation and for all the ways that in my heart i have conflict with you and the truth would you help me lose that today <laughs> Help me lose that today. Help me actually be more submitted to you than I was before. Do that in my heart. Do that in our hearts. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. I've always considered myself, I had always considered myself, I should say, a pretty kind person and not very argumentative and, you know, mainly servant-hearted. And then I got married to my wife and, and realized that, that that beautiful image that I had of myself in my head wasn't actually real. Uh, and, and then I, I never really thought that I was an angry person ever. Like I seemed to be pretty chill. And then my wife and I had three kids and I try to orchestrate the chaos that is bedtime every night in my house. And anger is very, very much at play in my heart. So what, what's happening there? Can anybody relate to that? Well, I think what's happening there is that my wife and kids have some real problems that they need to work through (laughs) and need help. No, it's I've got real problems. And somehow the pressure of marriage and parenting has brought out this real version of myself that was kind of bubbling beneath the surface that I didn't even know was there. And listen, you don't have to get married. You don't have to have kids. All you have to have is pressure. And when pressure is applied, the real you comes out. It doesn't create sins. It doesn't create things that didn't exist. It just shows you what you've actually been struggling with and never knew was really in you. When you, when you, when you squeeze a toothpaste tube, whatever's inside the tube comes out. Whatever's inside of you when pressure is applied comes out. And this is why the, the issue of authority for you and I is a really important deal. It's a really big deal because what's happening with us is that we often say that we believe certain things, we say that we assent to certain things, we, we profess to believe things about God, about scripture, about our lives, about one another, about our world, and then pressure hits, and what you actually believe comes out. Now, here's what's so crazy. Pressure can be both bad things, like a painful season, uh, unexpected suffering that hits, something tragic that comes into your life, or pressure can be Desire that you have, love for something, a want for something. And when that want or that desire is strong enough, who you really are and what you really think and what you really believe will be exposed. So today we're talking about this issue of ultimate authority. And here's what we're going to see happen. It's fascinating. We're going to see over the next few chapters in Mark uh, several conflicts between Jesus and the religious leaders of his day. It's not the group of people that you would think would be having issues with Jesus. They're religious leaders. You would think that those are the guys that have kind of their minds and their hearts attuned to the way of God, and they're not gonna have a problem with Jesus, but actually it's the religious leaders that are going to be uh, constantly confronting Jesus and having conflicts. In fact, there's seven different conflicts that are about to unfold in this gospel account. And it's going to reveal to you and I conflicts that you and I actually have with Jesus as well. Things that we have issues with when it comes to Jesus's teachings or his way or his authority as well. And we're gonna specifically today look at two different dangers that these religious leaders faced And by default, we face as well in our own culture in this moment today. So with that, let me just kind of remind you where we're at. Uh, We've been in 10 chapters so far in this gospel account, really only covering about three years of Jesus's life and ministry. So 10 chapters, we're covering three years of his life and ministry. And in chapter 11, there's a turn that happens. In chapter 11, Mark slows way down and we enter into the last week of Jesus's life before his death and his resurrection. It's called Holy Week, and though today for us is Sunday and the story that we're in, we're actually on Tuesday. And Mark's going to take 6 chapters to cover 6 days leading up to the death and resurrection of Jesus. So it's Tuesday, and he had just been in the temple and Jesus is going to walk back into the temple, and I want you to notice what happens. Look at verse 27. And they came again to Jerusalem. This is Jesus and his disciples. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, "By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them?" Now you might be wondering, "Authority to do what? What are they? What are they referencing?" Well, if you remember last week when Josh was with us, uh, what happened? Really, this is yesterday for Jesus, but last week for us, what had happened in the story? Jesus entered into the temple, and the temple was supposed to be a place that God intended for his presence to dwell, where people who are far from God could gather and and encounter the love of God, encounter forgiveness through sacrifices, that they could encounter moments of prayer and connection with God. That was what the temple was designed for. But the religious leaders of Jesus' day had made an absolute train wreck of the temple, They were using these sacrifices to sell and make money, taking advantage of poor people that were just trying to encounter God's presence. They were pushing out the Gentiles, not allowing them to even access certain places of prayer. They were completely misrepresenting God's heart for the temple, and Jesus had enough. And so what we saw last week, yesterday for Jesus, was not happy camper Jesus. We saw angry Jesus. Like I had a, a friend in high school that used to wear a shirt, Jesus is my homeboy. Do you remember those shirts? This is not homeboy Jesus. This is I'm going to freak out on you and I'm going to flip over tables and I'm literally going to drive you out of the temple because you're making a mess of what God intended for this thing to be. And so they're coming to Jesus and they're saying, hey, why'd you do that? And on the surface, that seems like a good question. Like If somebody came into your house and flipped over your coffee table, you'd be like, why did you do that? And who gave you the right to come into my home and flip over my coffee table? So on the surface, it's a good question. But here's what you need to understand about these religious leaders. You have the the scribes, you have the chief priests, and you have the elders. And those three groups make up what's called the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was 71 men from those three groups of people. And they functioned. think of it this way, as a supreme court of justice for the people of Israel. They were a buffer organization between Rome and Israel, and Rome essentially delegated a measure of political power to the Sanhedrin. They had a measure of legal power, and then ultimately they had all the religious power and authority over Israel. So here are men that feel entitled and feel like they have the authority to make decisions and to adjust things and to lead and to have authority over the people of Israel, and they feel threatened by Jesus And instead of asking this question about, hey, who gave you the right to do this from a pure heart, what you're gonna see is they're actually not interested in the answer at all. They're trying to trip Jesus up because if Jesus says the wrong thing, if Jesus says something that they deem blasphemous based on their understanding of the Mishnah, which is like a a commentary on the Old Testament that they were using, then they can have Jesus arrested and eventually they can have Jesus executed. That's what they're after. They're not after the truth. They're actually after Jesus tripping up. So look at Jesus's brilliant response in verse 29. Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from God is another way to say it. Was it from heaven or from man? Answer me. Now this is absolutely brilliant for a lot of reasons. Like what Jesus is doing here is not evading their question. He's not dodging their question by asking another question. And he's not even being sarcastic. What Jesus is doing here is an invitation for these religious leaders to process truth for just a minute. He says, hey, I wanna ask you a question. I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. But on that note, what authority did John the Baptist do what he did? Was that from God or was that just something that he did in his own human strength and power. And here's what he's doing. It's fascinating. He's making us remember Mark chapter 1. That's where we met John is in Mark chapter 1. And if you remember, John was kind of this interesting guy dressed in camel's hair, ate locusts, but actually invited the people of Israel into a place of repentance. He was saying, hey, you're you're living this way, opposed to God and his way, and I'm inviting you to change. I'm inviting you to turn out of that way into this way. Come back to God, return to God. And all the people of Israel were flocking to John and going under the waters of baptism to demonstrate their heart to want to follow God, except for guess who? Most of the religious leaders. In fact, some of the religious leaders show up to John's baptism, and John calls them you brood of vipers which is not a compliment in the first century right he's he's saying you act like you want to do the right thing but deep down you really don't and so these religious leaders had already felt threatened by John but here's what happens next Jesus arrives on the scene and Jesus goes under the waters of baptism and comes back up what happens when Jesus comes out of the waters of baptism the heavens are torn open And God the Father speaks from heaven with an audible voice. And he says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. What more authority can you have than God ripping the sky wide open and publicly affirming you as his beloved son and giving you the authority? That's what's happening here. He's saying, remember John. And if you understand who John is and what John's purpose was as a messenger preparing the way for me, then you're gonna understand who I am and where I get my authority. But there's another layer here. Let's go back even further. 400 years before Jesus arrives on the scene, uh, there's this prophecy in Malachi chapter three about John the Baptist and about what this would mean for Jesus. Now think about all of this in the context of Jesus being in the temple, flipping tables and purging it. Malachi three, verse one. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. That's John the Baptist. And the Lord whom you seek, look at this, will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. What is is this Messiah going to do when he gets to the temple? Verse 2. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. These religious leaders knew the Old Testament. They would have known this. And Jesus is saying, process who John the Baptist is. Because now you realize that I've suddenly arrived at my temple and I am purifying the sons of Levi. I'm doing the thing that John was preparing the way for. You want to know who I am and by what authority I do these things? That's my authority, both from history and from scripture and from the divine voice of God himself from heaven. What a phenomenal answer. It's almost as if Jesus really is God, right? This is a brilliant answer. So what's their response? Do they fall on their knees and go, oh my gosh, God is among us. No. Look at verse 31. And they discussed it with one another, saying, Well, if we say from heaven, he will say, Well, then why did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. This is so funny in a sad way. Jesus is asking them a question as an invitation to process who he really is and his identity and his authority. They seclude themselves off from Jesus for a minute and huddle up and have a meeting. Jesus is like 10 feet away. And they're like, what do we, how do we answer this question? And here's the dilemma that they're in. They actually did not believe that John the Baptist was a real prophet sent from God. But all of the people of Israel did believe that. They were really nervous that they would lose credibility among the people They were really nervous that they would lose their political power and their influence and their religious authority over Israel. So they they felt like, well, we can't say that he wasn't sent from God because then our constituents are going to rise up and be mad and we'll lose the company car and we might lose our jobs. That's what they're thinking. But if they say, okay, well, let's just appease the people and say that he really was sent from God, then Jesus is going to ask us, then why didn't you idiots listen to him if he really was sent from God? So what do we do? How do we answer What Jesus is asking us. Do you notice the twisted nature of their heart? They're not interested in the truth right now, they're after something else. So, notice what they say in verse 33. So, they answered Jesus, We do not know. And I just imagine them saying that very slowly and painfully, right? Have you ever met someone who has a hard time saying, I don't know the answer to that question? I'm one of those people that feels like I always have to have an answer to the question. It's hard for me to say the words, I do not know. I imagine them in this moment, like cringing and going, we do not know. The reality is they do know, but they're lying because they're trying to cover up the fact that they're just afraid of losing their power. So Jesus, his response, he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. He'd invited them to process and they were unwilling to process the truth, they were actually after something else. And this leads me to one of two dangers that I want us to look at together. The first danger that they faced and we face is wanting what you want more than wanting the truth. You see, these religious leaders actually wanted something more than they wanted the truth. Now, on theory, they're not opposed to the truth. They're religious leaders, If you ask them, hey, do you guys care about the truth? It's like, these are people of the Torah. They're people of the law. They love truth. They would have professed to you. No, no, we study truth. We love, we are after the truth. But actually what's happening in the story is their real heart, as the pressure is getting applied, what really is inside of them is coming out. And what you find is they are not really interested in even considering the truth about Jesus. They really just want something more than that, which is ongoing power, Influence, authority as religious leaders over Israel. They wanted something more than the truth. Yeah, 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 we want the truth, but something more than that is what we're really after. This is a problem that every human throughout our entire existence has faced the same exact struggle. You can actually get on a plane today and fly to Washington, D.C., and walk into the Museum of the Bible, which I hear is pretty amazing. You can walk into that museum and find this. I want to show you a picture of it. This is known as the Slave Bible. It's coming, I promise. There it is. This is sitting in the Museum of the Bible right now. And the Slave Bible was used by British missionaries in the 1800s to convert and educate slaves. Maybe you've heard of this, maybe you haven't. And the interesting thing about the slave Bible is not the content of it, it's what it lacks in content that's fascinating. What they did was they removed any portion of scripture that speaks about freedom or liberation or equality so that these slaves would not rise up and rebel against being slaves. And so what they did is literally went through and just cut out whole sections of scripture. So as a result, you've got about 90% of the Old Testament that is missing, about 50% of the New Testament that's missing. And to say it another way, the Standard Bible today has about 1,189 chapters. Their slave Bible, the version that they were using to educate and convert slaves, had about 232 chapters. Now, if you ask those British missionaries in the 1800s, hey, are you guys interested in the truth? What's the response going to be? Yeah, we love the truth. Like, that's why we have the slave Bible, so that we can give them the truth. But there's something that we want more than the truth. We actually are after owning people, and so we're going to bend the truth. We'll even exclude the truth. We'll ignore the truth altogether, so long as it gives me what I want. I'm fine with the truth so long as it goes with what I feel like I really want. But the second there's an issue between what I want and what the truth is, I'll actually go with what I want and push the truth away. Friends, we can approach this story about the religious leaders and this story about British missionaries in the 1800s with a lot of chronological snobbery, can't we? How dare they? Why would they do that? That's horrible. That's, who does that? Who, what kind of Arrogance, do you have to have to cut out whole sections of scripture and redesign it for your own purposes? But do we not do the exact same thing today? Where there's something that we want more than the truth, we're, we're willing to exclude the truth altogether. No, 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 we're after the truth. We're the people of God. We're Christians. We love the truth. But if there's an opposition or a conflict between what I really want and what the truth says, I'll bend the truth to say something it doesn't say just so that I can get what I want. I'll get myself into an echo chamber where other people even affirm what I want as the truth. I'll actually go find a blog or a podcast or whatever that affirms what I want is actually not wrong. It really is the truth. We do this all the time. Maybe it's in our marriage or in our singleness or in our vision of sexuality or whatever it might be. But when you come across something in your heart and when I come across something in my heart that I want, and then there's the truth, who gets to to decide? Is it me or is it the truth? And this is a danger that we face. It's wanting what we want more than the truth because what it actually ends up doing is deceiving you and I to think that we're people of the truth when really we're just people that want what we want. That's the first danger that we see play out with them that we need to process. Now, that, that's the first one, but there's one more I wanna look at together, and, and we're gonna see this actually as a related danger, but it's still different. And we get this as Jesus is gonna roll into a parable in chapter 12. We think chapter 12, oh, so we're moving away from the story. It's not. This is the same exact context. He had just answered back these religious leaders, and now he's gonna communicate to them a parable to help them understand what's happening as a further invitation. Look at chapter 12, verse one. And Jesus began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard, and he put a fence around it, and he dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower. And he leased his land to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him, and they beat him, and they sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, (coughs) excuse me, and they struck him on the head and they treated him shamefully. (coughs) That is not COVID, I'm so sorry. I've already had it. And he sent another. (coughs) What is happening to me? (coughs) And he sent another and him they killed and so with many others, some they beat And some they killed, and he had still one another, a beloved son. Look at this. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him, and they killed him, and they threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants. And give the vineyard to others. Have you not read the scriptures? That the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Now, What does this parable mean? Well, this is a really fascinating parable from Jesus because uh, Isaiah 5 was a very well-known text among the people of Israel. And in Isaiah 5, it actually talks about God as a vineyard farmer who plants a vineyard. This vineyard that he plants is meant to be the people of Israel, right? So he plants his people, and his hope is that they're going to bear fruit, and they're going to grow, and they're going to thrive, and they're going to be you know, beautiful in the world. But actually what happens is they don't bear good fruit, they bear bad fruit. The fruit is rotten, and instead of them living in the ways that God has intended, they actually live in distorted Broken ways. And that parable of God being a vineyard farmer and the people of Israel being a vineyard is repeated again and again and again throughout the Old Testament. So Jesus is taking this parable and he's kind of using it but flipping it a little bit to describe the brokenness of these religious leaders. He's saying, Hey, listen, here are the characters of the story. God is the vineyard owner. The people of Israel and the temple is his vineyard. And these tenants that God has entrusted the vineyard to. Are these religious leaders? And you know that the job of a tenant isn't to own things and control things, but it's actually to care for the thing that God has entrusted to you and to to do whatever you're doing in line with His heart. But these tenants don't do that. So God actually goes to send fruit. This vineyard farmer goes to send messengers to get fruit and they kill one and then they beat another one. And then they treat one shamefully. And, and again and again and again, God is sending people. And what is that a reference to? Well, that's a reference to all the times in scripture that God is raising up prophet after prophet after prophet, sending them to his people. And he's, he's inviting them. He's pleading with them saying, hey, won't you listen? Won't you turn? Won't you come back to the way that I've intended? And eventually he gets to the place where he sends his beloved Son, And this is Jesus. You hear that phrase, beloved son, immediately makes you think of his baptism, makes you think of the transfiguration where God said, this is my beloved son, listen to him. So the story Jesus is holding out to the religious leaders and he's saying, hey, friends, like I've sent prophet after prophet after prophet to try to bring you back and you've not listened. And now here I am, the beloved son himself. And yet your response is so Tragic. Look at it it again in verse seven. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and notice why, and the inheritance will be ours. What are they really after here? They don't wanna be tenants anymore. They wanna be owners. And this, friends, is the second danger that you and I face. It's the danger of wanting to be the owner rather than the tenant. The religious leaders had been placed as tenants over the people of God. They'd been given what they had, religious authority, gifting, understanding of scripture, all these things, so that they could lead in line with God's heart. But they wanted more than that. They wanted to transgress their identity as tenants, and they wanted to be the owner of the land. Hey, if we get rid of God, then we can be our own God. And again, just like with the first danger that we looked at, that's not just something that they faced 2,000 years ago. We today face that exact same struggle. Everything that you and I have, our money, our singleness, our marriage, our parenting, our jobs, our homes, our lives, all of it, everything that you and I have has been given to us as a gift by God. He has placed you and I as tenants over this world and over our stuff and over our lives and over our sexuality. And one of the temptations that we face is wanting to transgress our relationship and identity as a tenant to actually become the owner where we get to call the shots. If we kill God, then we don't have to deal with God and we can be God ourselves. And this is a tragedy because in this story, it actually does physically, literally lead to the death of Jesus and just a few short days from this story. But for you and I, it doesn't lead to the physical death of God. It just leads to us affirming and assenting that we believe in God, but gagging him at every turn whenever he says something that we don't like. It leads to believing in God, but functionally being our own God. So if there's ever a disagreement between what God says and what I want, then I just get to choose what I want. It's the danger of becoming an owner where you take full ownership and say, I'll just be God over my own life. I'll just call the shots. I'll define what is right and what is wrong, what is good, and what is evil for myself. Tim Keller says it this way, if your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself, where we actually mentally assent to God just so long as he doesn't get in my way for what I really want. This is a danger. The first danger, wanting what we want more than the truth, and wanting to actually transgress our identity as tenets and become owners. Now, friends, as I'm saying this, I feel this danger in my own heart every single day. This is not like, there are people out there. No, 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 this is religious leaders that should have known better. And not much has changed today. As a pastor, there's times where there's things that I want that actually I have to wrestle with. Here's what the truth says, but what I want to do is so different. What do I do when those two clash? Who wins? Who gets the final say? Sometimes I want to be my own God, and I want to define what is right and wrong for myself and not actually listen to God. What do we do? These are dangers. Do you know why it's a danger? Because you and I make really, really terrible gods. And whenever you try to become an owner, you're not a very good owner. We make really, really good tenants and really bad owners. And sometimes what we want is good But more often than not, what we really are after and what we want is disordered and broken and dysfunctional. Let me say it this way. Uh, David Foster Wallace was an American author uh, who was an atheist, tragically committed suicide a few years ago. Brilliant, brilliant thinker. And he wrote this describing what happens when we become our own gods. He wouldn't say it that way, but I think this is him really talking about what's happened to our culture as we've tried to kill God and be our own God. For me, he says, the last few years of the postmodern era have seemed a bit like the way you feel when you're in high school and your parents go on a trip and you throw a party. You get all your friends over and throw this wild, disgusting, fabulous party. For a while, it's great. Free and freeing, parental authority gone and overthrown. A cat's away, let's play Dionysian rebel. But then, time passes and the party gets louder and louder and you run out of drugs, and nobody's got any money for more drugs. Things get broken and spilled, and there's a cigarette burn on the couch. And you're the host, and it's your house too, and you gradually start wishing that your parents would come back and restore some order in your house. It's 3 a.m., and the couch has several burn holes, and somebody's thrown up in the umbrella stand, and we're wishing that the revel would end. We're kind of wishing some parents would come back. And then the uneasiest feeling of all is we start to gradually realize that parents, in fact, are not ever coming back. This was a man who had decided to live his own way, and I'm not saying this in any way as a judgment on him, but got to the end of his life and thought, man, to what joy has this brought me? To what extent have I kind of lived this way? And he was so overwhelmed with the brokenness of our world that he took his own life friends, here's my point. My point is this. We make really bad gods, and God in the story is actually a vineyard farmer, not a prison guard. He's not trying to hold us in prison and not have any joy and any fun and any delight and any thriving. He's a vineyard farmer. He's actually after our thriving. He's trying to produce good fruit so that he can make some wine. That does not sound like a prison guard. He's after our joy. He's after our good. The restrictions and the authority and the no's and the truth that he's putting in our lives are meant to be for our good. And when we rebel against those, it does not lead to more thriving. It leads to more dysfunction and even death itself. So happy Sunday. Thanks for coming on Baby Dedication Sunday. Some of you are like, what a depressing church. Somebody left a Google review on our uh, on our uh, Google review, we were preaching through Job and it was one star and it just said depressing. I was like, that's amazing. I get, it was really depressing. I mean, they were right. Um, so maybe you're like, one star of this sermon, this is terrible. Where do we go from here? What is the point of the story? What is the point of looking at these dangers? Well, here's the point and I'll close. This is in you and it's in me and yet what I want you to see is the overwhelming patience and kindness and re- re- resilience to again and again and again come after his people, even when they say no. How many times did this vineyard owner send one messenger after another, after another, after another? He would not stop. It's almost ridiculous. It's almost like, dude, if they kill one guy, that's a problem. If they kill two, stop sending guys, not God. I'm gonna send another one. I'll send another truth. I'll send another prophet, another messenger to the point to where the scriptures culminate in the story of for God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him, not mentally assenting to, but actually believes in him, won't perish, but will have eternal life. God is after us even when we are not after him. God is after our good even when we try to kill him to be owners. God is after us because he knows that at the end of the day all your desires find their culmination in the person of Jesus Christ. What you really want is found in him. And he is so merciful, he is so gracious that Jesus, staring the religious leaders in the eyes, prays this prayer from the cross in Luke 23. Father, Father, Forgive them, for they know not what they do. Hey, if you're here today and you're like, yeah, I basically don't want to be a tenant. I want to be an owner of my life. God is looking you in the eyes saying, Father, forgive them. And he's pursuing you and he's reaching out to you. If today you find yourself in this secret struggle between what is true and what you really want and you're willing to bend the truth to get what you want, he's not mad at you. He loves you. He's calling out to you. He's inviting you every step of the way. He's trying to get these religious leaders to consider reality. Friends, how will you respond? They respond like this in chapter 12, verse 12. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them, so they left him and went away. Pride. They do not listen. They do not receive. How will you respond? Will you respond with humility? So let's stand. Let me pray for you. Father, I pray for my friends. I pray for us today in this room where there's a competition in our hearts between truth and desire where those are competing things. I pray for the grace in my own heart and for the hearts of these people that we would lose that battle every time and that you would win it. When you and I disagree, when you and my friends disagree, I pray that you would help us lose that fight every time. We pray for grace to not just say we're followers of Jesus, but functionally to put ourselves underneath your authority. And we just confess, I mean, we've lived long enough to know that we make really bad owners. Some of us have made a real mess of our lives. And God, you're actually drawn towards us in our mess. You actually are drawn towards us with mercy and grace. Not to bring judgment, but to bring forgiveness and healing and sanity and hope. And I pray for that today. I pray that you would give us the grace to not be like these religious leaders. God, I just confess, this is in my heart. I see so much of their behavior in me. I pray that you would purge it out of me. And when you invite me into a different way, help me not be stiff-necked. Pray that for my friends. In Jesus' name, amen.